Hello! Welcome to the little Googlets episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of HuffPost. Hello! I'm here with Anna Shemansky of Breaking Views. Hello! And, oh my God, this was a busy week. I wrote in my Axios Capital newsletter this week, which you should all subscribe to, that there was this long list of announcements just this week from Purdue and Google and Goldman and Brockman and all of this like crime crackdown is happening in in the world of white collar crime. So that's really what we're going to talk about. Although we're also going to talk about Quibi because honestly, <laughs> we have to talk about Quibi, right? Quibi is an amazing story. If you wanted to burn through $1.4 billion in six months, could you do it? Because Jeffrey Katzenberg could. So we're going to talk about Quibi. We're going to talk about Purdue Pharma and the $8.3 billion fine on them and whether it's really real or not. But first, we're going to talk about Google, this big antitrust case, which is really important. So stay tuned for that. It's all coming up on Slate Money. So here's something which I didn't realize up until this week, which is that antitrust cases, you hear a lot about them a lot when there emerges, right? One company announces it's going to buy another company. And then everyone's like, well, assuming it passes antitrust, you know, filters, and sometimes it doesn't. And the EU government or the US government says you can't do that merger because it would an be anti-competitive. That's basically all of antitrust. If when the government just goes along to a company where there's no merger involved. It's just a very big monopolistic company and says, you're a monopoly and that's a problem and that's illegal and you're behaving anti-competitively. That effectively never happens. The only time that's happened since like 1980 was Microsoft in 1998. And then before that, there were a few, you know, there was Alcoa and IBM and, but like it's in extraordinarily rare. And that's why this week's news that Google has been hit with this suit is such a big deal because this never happens. And honestly, like this isn't the end of it. Like now that the floodgates have opened, I kind of think that Facebook and Amazon and possibly Apple are going to get hit with this too. I So that's why I'm thinking that this Google case is a really big deal. It's almost unprecedented just to Google, and it could be the beginning of a whole new era. We should say, to get the news out there very explicitly, that we're talking about the antitrust case filed against Google by the Department of Justice this week, alleging that it's anti-competitive because of the way it bundles its search engine into uh, phones, both um, Apple's iPhones and Android devices. Just to get that out of the way, we should say that. And this is a very narrow antitrust case against Google. I mean, it's not even an antitrust case against Alphabet, right, which is the parent company. It's just an antitrust case against Google. It doesn't talk about all of the crazy monopolistic anti-competitive stuff that Google does by locking you into its ecosystem with Google Maps and Gmail and YouTube and all of this kind of stuff. It's just really super narrow, concentrating on search. And it doesn't even talk about the search engine results page, which is a whole other kettle of fish with the, which the EU has been looking into for many years. It's just looking at what you said, about, said, Emily, which is Google is forcing everyone to use its search, basically. And it's doing that in anti-competitive ways. It's paying Apple like $10 billion a year or whatever to make sure that it's the default search engine in Apple. And as a result, it has this insane market share north of 90% on, on just about everything. And that's a monopoly. And so they're saying, you are behaving illegally here. 
So this is very, very similar to the Microsoft issue. The one thing, though, I would say is that after Microsoft, we didn't necessarily see a huge wave of antitrust, even though it was similarly, not unprecedented, but not too much precedent. Although I do think, Felix, you're right that this time is probably different because at the time you didn't necessarily have as many companies that you could point to in the way you could point to Microsoft and say quite clearly you're engaging in monopolistic behavior, whereas now you can. First, there's no question Google search has a monopoly on phones of any type on your computer. There is no Google laughably is arguing that there are alternatives to its search that you can use. But that's just it's absurd on its face. We all know that like I tried to use other search engines this week and wound up having to Google, use Google to find the search engines. And <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just a joke. There's no there's no actual substitute for Google search. Um, but then the issue a lot of times in antitrust it, um, cases is what's the consumer harm? And, um, you know, there's a lot of talk right now about typically consumer harm. You look at just prices, are consumers paying more for this for this stuff because there's a monopoly? And with Google Search, obviously, it's free. So then there's a lot of discussion going on about, well, what's the actual consumer harm? And I was really kind of struggling with that myself because it's like, well, Google Search is really, really good. I remember when it first came out and being just blown away by it, right? Before Google Search, we had like, Felix remembers, Alta Vista. And like, I do remember. <laughs> it was but a I- joke. Ask Jeeves. And clearly, it was better. Um, and now we're stuck only with it. And there's no innovation. So is that consumer right. harm that like, I so don't, we don't know. I mean, the point the point know. about the Google search is that we don't know, right? Is that Google created a better mousetrap, and then no one else created better mousetraps. Like mm. DuckDuckGo is a decent search engine. And it certainly is much better at protecting your privacy. But we we simply don't know if there had been competition between search engines where the search engine universe would be right now because Google has sewn up the market. And that's the problem. And this question of, of consumer harm is a really important one because this goes back to like Robert Bork and a whole bunch of like reinvention of antitrust as the as determining whether or not people are being harmed by this. And that's the only question that matters. And the fact is, and the Department of Justice did a pretty good job making this case, that anti-competitive monopolistic behavior can be illegal and anti-competitive and monopolistic, even if there isn't obvious consumer harm. Like, consumer harm is one of the things that happens when you get monopolies. But that doesn't mean that if there's no consumer harm, there isn't a monopoly. I would argue that there is consumer harm here, and it has to do with the fact that we pay in data, and we are being asked to produce more and more data. And as a firm like Google, the ability to access all that data then feeds into everything else. It is this essentially new currency, and moving forward, that's what you feed to algorithms. That's how you're going to develop machine learning and all of that. So number one, it gives them an extraordinarily large competitive advantage, but it also means that as a consumer... I am required to give more and more of my data without having any ability to move that data to another service if I wanted to. Right. I think that's that's key that what Google does, insofar as Google is a good search engine and a good consumer product, it is good because it has aggregated a huge amount of consumer data and the ability to aggregate that 
large amount of consumer data just makes it better. And on some level, it's a consumer benefit, right? If all of the consumers give all of their data to one company and all of that data gets aggregated with one company, which can then use all of that data to become a much better company and produce better products, then that's good for consumers. On the other hand, you can see the problem here. Yeah, you can see the problem here. And and one thing I also wanted to mention before I forget is that the monopoly of Google search on phones, that wasn't actually a given. When Apple unveiled the iPhone, you know, there was a lot of discussion about like, is this the end for Google search? Because the iPhone was going to be apps, which meant you didn't need search the way you need it on a desktop. And I think it's really interesting that that's where these claims lie. It's not that Google has a search monopoly like on our desktops. It's like Google has a search monopoly on the phones because it had to do that on the phones. It had to make sure it was the default browser. Otherwise, we would have gone into some different like world in which we really weren't using Google in, in the same way. Apple could absolutely have built its own search engine and it made a very conscious decision that like Apple software has never been that great. And rather than try very hard to build up their own search engine, they were just going to collect, you know, $10 billion a year in dividends from Google and let Google do the search. And they kind of divvied up the market between them. So Apple got the hardware and Google got the search and they both benefit in this kind of duopolistic mm -hmm. way. So mm -hmm. absolutely, they could have been like, it was by no means, and the same is true of Facebook, by the way. If you remember the Facebook IPO, mm -hmm. everyone was saying, well, Facebook is great on desktop, but everyone's going to move to phones. And who knows whether anyone will use Facebook on their phone. Like there was this moment when the pre-mobile era monopolies like Google and Facebook, there was this moment when maybe they wouldn't, have managed to continue those monopolies into the era of everything happening on phones. But as it happened, they did. And now we are in this world where they're even bigger and stronger monopolies, much, much bigger than they ever were pre-mobile. And Google and Apple working together, that seems like <laughs> two monopolies, like leveraging, making kind of an anti-competitive deal together, which I guess is part of the case against Google right now, right? I mean, they became friends instead of competitors in this deal, both needing this this deal. And I believe that like wasn't Steve Jobs on the Google board? I can't even remember. But they were they were very close for a while and then they started competing a little bit more and the cross board memberships and stuff like, you know, fell apart. And they're not friends, but certainly on search, Apple has made a very strategic decision to cooperate and not compete. I do wonder though if we can use basically old-fashioned antitrust tools in a very different ec economy with very different companies. Because often when you talk about antitrust, people will just say, well, we should just break them up. And I I'm not sure if that necessarily makes sense. I'm not sure if most people would actually want to not have Google connected to many, many different services. So then it raises the question of, well, then what actually should the government do? Yeah, what should so the, the remedy so the, be? Yeah, the remedy question is super interesting. And the Department of Justice was very careful not to include any proposed remedies in its suit, which I think was smart. The breakup remedy is the one that everyone always kind of their mind first goes to. It's like, in the, like the, you know, they could for, force these people to break up. 
in terms of this narrow thing about search, it's unclear how you could force Google to break up or whether it would even be helpful. And if you go back to the relatively small number of antitrust cases against individual companies that aren't merger related, the breakup remedy is very rare. Like it didn't happen to Microsoft. Like, you know, it happened to AT&T back in the day and that was about it. So I doubt that the remedy in this particular case will be a breakup unless a uh, Biden administration expands the case to include much more anti-competitive behavior and, you know, with things like bundling with YouTube and Google Maps and Gmail. And if you do, if they do that, then maybe there becomes a case for a breakup. I guess you could argue that even if there's no remedy and the case, Google even wins the case, there is like a chilling effect and a message being sent not just to Google, but to all these big tech companies that they can't do certain things. Like the Microsoft case, that's really what the outcome of was that, right? It was like, hey, watch out, like don't, don't get too crazy with this stuff. It was just like message sending more than anything else. I think I think there will be no chilling effect unless something pretty drastic happens just because the amount of money they make, you know, Alphabet is worth well over a trillion dollars. It's the the profits are so enormous from behaving in this kind of way that like the cost of defending against the occasional antitrust case is just a cost of doing business and it's not even a particularly large cost of doing business and i want to quote peter Thiel, who's a facebook board member who i quoted in my newsletter yesterday because this is i think at the heart of what is going on at google and facebook and amazon and even apple where he wrote this book zero to one and he said quote tomorrow's champions will not win by competing ruthlessly they will escape competition altogether and this is the way that Silicon Valley thinks. This is the idea that like, how you get rich in Silicon Valley is by quite explicitly avoiding competition, which is anti-competitive by definition. And the idea that that mindset is going to go away is, I think, um, utopian in the extreme. Although I would argue that if you look at a lot of the comments that John D. Rockefeller made, he basically was always saying competition is bad. You can never possibly grow this industry with competition. You, we can't just allow free markets. There needs to be more control. And obviously, his form of control was you know, having the Standard Oil Trust. And then sentiment changed, the world changed, and eventually his company was broken up. I'm not saying that Google or any of these companies should essentially be broken up, but I don't think that the current mindset will never change. No, and I, I think the, but I think I do think the mindset from a business perspective has been the same all along, right? It was the same in Rockefeller's day as it was today, which is that if you can get yourself a monopoly, or like the the, the word that Warren Buffett likes to use because the word monopoly has negative connotations, if you can get yourself a moat, then you can make lots of money, and that's a great thing to do for business. And businesses hate going into areas where there's like a huge amount of competition. They love going into areas where they can carve out a monopoly for themselves. And that's always the case. And the only person who's ever going to stop them doing that is the government coming in and suing them. The government also hands out monopolies, remember, gives out patents and, and grants copyrights and gives companies very cushy, wonderful, and utilities. And yeah, it's up to the government <laughs> to make sure all of this is regulated because the, the private sector is never going to do it on its own. But if they broke up Google, would they make little Googleettes? <laughs> Just putting Applets. it out there.
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So let's talk about the major platform that launched this year and completely transformed the world of filmed entertainment. Who knew that we would all be glued to our phones watching short form vertical format digital video it has been an absolute explosion we're all doing it now i find myself disappearing down tiktok holes for hours and so obviously the main company that is doing this on a professional level with hollywood stars and 1.75 billion dollars of funding is quibi and quibi oh my god what a success story wow they really nailed it right wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> oh wait yes. they didn't nail it they kind of got it <laughs> no. wrong Sadly, we only got a quick bite of Quibi. It only lasted for <laughs> six months before crashing and burning, just as everyone predicted. I think one of the most surprising things about this is how unsurprising it is. <laughs> when when the company launched and we talked about it, we we said this is like not a good idea. It's too much money. You get all these videos for free anyway. What is this? It's not innovative. You can't that the technology was designed in a way so you can't make memes out of the content, which is like a big, big fail in 2020. So I don't think anyone thought this was going to work. And then it didn't work. Well, well they man- okay. So, so, so the interesting question about like who thought it was going to work, the one, one obvious answer to that is, well, the people who put in $1.75 billion thought it was going to work. <laughs> But the interesting thing about that is a lot of them didn't even think it was going to work because a lot of them were the movie studios and production companies who were being paid out of that $1.7 billion to make stuff. So, like, they were like, you know, if you promise to pay me $50 million to make shit, I will invest, like, $40 million in your company. I just make, you know... It, it like it turns out it was a bad investment for them because like all their investment kind of went to zero within six months and so probably they would have been better off not doing that but a lot of it was kind of circular self-dealing and i think that's how katzenberg managed to get so much money so quickly i mean the amount i, I did the math right he says he's going to be able to return 350 million dollars to investors which means he bu- he burned through 1.4 billion dollars in about six months it's not easy to spend like seven and a half million dollars a day like that's bruce's millions kind of stuff right it, like <laughs> it, you it really takes skill to spend that much money that quickly i don't think i could do it going back to the idea of well why did people put all this money and i think it's it's katzenberg it's meg whitman it's the fact that i think when you have these big name people and you have people who have been somewhat successful in other areas and with Katzenberg in entertainment. And then when you have, you see money coming in, even if it's money that's coming in, that's going directly out back to the like the Hollywood studios, then that can potentially draw more investment. But ultimately, as we said, they, they were trying to create a market that didn't exist. The short video market is not a premium market. And they were trying to make it into a premium market, not because it was, but because they wanted it to be. And that is always a dubious proposition. 
Uh, we right. should and say I think what, what, explicitly, can we just yeah. say explicitly that we're discussing that Katzenberg this week <laughs> announced that Quibi would be shutting down. They tried to sell it, didn't work. So that's the news we're here to talk about right now, the failure. of and, and I think one of the reasons to Anna's point that, you know, this was created by people who really wanted it to exist rather than by people who thought it would do well. They just like, it must do well. And what I think was going on behind the scenes, and you can see this in the fact that they sold hundreds of millions of dollars worth of advertising before they even launched, is that brand advertisers are really flailing right now. As people stop watching ad-supported TV and start moving to non-ad-supported TV like Netflix or start moving to user-generated stuff like TikTok, it's very hard for brand advertisers who really care about their image to find areas where they can show consumers their beautifully produced short-form ads. And that's what they want to be able to do. And so they saw Quibi as like this Hail Mary pass of like, oh my God, finally we can find brand-safe content to advertise against on the phone. And it's the holy grail of what advertisers all want. And so they all rushed into it. And everyone's like this must exist, therefore it will do well. But the fact is that consumers have no interest in creating platforms that are going to be brand safe for brand advertisers. That's not our <laughs> interest. That's the you know, brand's interest. And what we are perfectly happy doing is disappearing down, you know, TikTok holes or using services like Netflix that don't have any ads at all. And so this is the failure of Quibi is bad for brand advertisers, but honestly, like I don't think too many people are shedding too many tears for them. I mean, from what I understand, there were no good shows on Quibi. Like the one thing that might have proved detractors wrong and and saved the platform would have been like a show with some buzz. And they're just not a single one. Not a single one did well. And I think right now we've seen there's so much competition in streaming and there's such a high bar for TV right now that you can't just have mediocre programming and you also need a back catalog. I think we're definitely seeing that with how well Disney Plus has done. So they have none of that. And then on top of that, part of the way they were incentivized, they were able to incentivize a lot of these Hollywood you know, companies to fund these shows is that they don't actually own their own content. Yes, <laughs> I couldn't believe that. <laughs> and this is part of the reason that this failed. They weren't sold because there's nothing to buy. <laughs> like that is another instance of where it, it almost seems like a lot of this was a little bit of smoke and mirrors, where it appeared like they were getting, a, you know, they had all this content. It appeared like they were getting all of these people investing, but the reality wasn't wasn't that. Right. And I wanted to emphasize also, like, people were trying to argue this was bad timing, the reason Quibi failed, because it launched right at the start of the pandemic when everything went, cra- you know, shut oh, down. Give me but a of break. course, that's ridiculous, because... The one thing everyone was doing in this and is still doing in the pandemic is watching content on their phones. You know, it. it I mean, yeah, I get, I get anyone. my little weekly alert from my <laughs> iPhone saying your yeah. your usage of your iPhone is up to like eight thousand hours last week. Right. I'm like, yeah. yeah, if there was good stuff on the phone that I wanted to watch, I would be watching it. Absolutely. But I think they, I think they also got the timing completely wrong on t- in terms of how long these contents were. They were like, well, no one wants to sit down and watch a 90-minute movie on their phone. True. They said, well, actually, no one even wants to sit down and watch a half-hour TV show on their phone. Kind of true, although people do. 
So they were like, well, okay, what we're going to do is make these 10 minute long episodes as though 10 minutes was like the on the phone sweet spot. It turns out if you look at what people want to do on their phone in terms of video, you know, Vine was six seconds, right? TikTok tops out at one minute. Like you, these things were obviously if you want to create storylines and arcs and professional productions and this kind of thing, you can see why they would want to be able to give themselves at least 10 minutes and ideally like a whole series of 10 minute episodes. But that's just, I don't think anyone ever thinks, oh, I have 10 minutes to spare. They were like, well, the pandemics managed to mean that people weren't standing in line at the grocery store to be able to just like flick through their phone and watch a 10. But no, if you're standing in line at the grocery store, you don't have 10 minutes to watch an episode of a thing, right? You have 30 seconds to watch an Instagram story. Like a minute and a half is an eternity when you are mm-hmm. on the internet and everyone knows that already. Like TikTok is great, but even then I'm like, okay, that's a minute. Mm, all right, let's see. And if it's 20 seconds in and I'm not interested, it's over. Like, and I mean, we've known that for years. There's those, you ever click on a link on Facebook or Twitter and you think it's a news story and you see it's a video and it's just like, oh my God, I can't waste my life like this. It's just... There's something about time and video length that is different. Someone, someone sent me this, like, at all. if you want to understand the Google antitrust, just click this. It'll explain everything. And I clicked it, and it was a 15-minute long video. I will never oh watch God. that no. video. Never. <laughs> never. Never, ever. But I don't know. I mean, I know that people like YouTube videos that explain the news and stuff. I just, I agree with Felix. Ten minutes, that well, was an awful choice. But you can watch YouTube videos, like, on your computer. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what about the Peter Kafka piece that Felix sent around? He thinks this was oh, a good thing that okay. this happened, even though it no, was it, well, he's not saying it was a good thing that it happened. But I think Peter Peter Kafka at Recode made a very good point when he wrote about this, which is that the kind of media that like we consumers, we as a society, want to support is like people making bets on like, I'm going to make a TV show, I'm going to make a movie, I'm going to make a short form video type thing that you can watch by rotating your phone. I'm going to do all of this stuff. And then people are going to want to watch it. And then if they decide to watch it, then I will make money. And if they don't decide to watch it, then I will lose money. That's how movies have always worked. That's how TV shows have always worked. And that's how Quibi worked. And people decided they didn't want to watch it and they lost money. And that's how these things work. But that's how it should work. What Peter's point was is that increasingly we have moved to a very different world, which is I'm going to build a platform where I spend no money on content at all. I'm not going to risk any of my money making any content. I'm just going to create musically or TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or whatever it is. And it's going to show user generated content for which I pay zero. And then people will be able to pick and choose whatever they want, but there's not going to be any risk taking really in terms of me trying to create good content. And I, and you know, those are the platforms which are really succeeding. And on some level it is sad and bad and depressing, but also true that we, you know, we are moving away from this world of people being willing to take risks by making content and hoping that people will want to watch it. Because it turns out that you make much more money by not making content and just like doing the UGC thing. 
I don't think that's true. I mean, we have Netflix, HBO Max. Yeah, yeah. Netflix has really just been throwing money at productions. So I don't know if I totally buy that. Yeah, yeah I, there's I mean, Netflix, I think, there's HBO yeah, Max, yeah. there's um, Disney Plus. Like there are Peacock and yeah, no, there that are, are making and content are... and you know, pay, we pay for them. Netflix in particular is spending much more money than like all of the rest of them combined, pretty much. We, you know, and that's good. And I'm glad that Netflix is doing it. My daughter thinks that TV is Netflix. <laughs> well, my four-year-old nephew thinks that YouTube on my sister's phone, I guess, is is the entire world, basically. Yeah, so, I mean, there are plenty of platforms that are creating content and a few that are using free stuff to sell ads. But I don't, I don't think there's a dearth of, of the content creating platforms. I think there's probably a glut there, of there is a QB dearth, was bad. There is a, there is a dearth <laughs> of content creating... There is a dearth of advertising-supported content creating advertising platforms. Advertising. Like Hulu... Hulu is basically the only one. And so, but yeah, as we said, like there's no rule which says that brand advertisers have to have like access to enormous platforms. They have for a while and maybe they don't know. And maybe the brands need to wield some of their brand power on the platforms that are free so that we don't see as much trash content there. Which they are doing to some extent, you know, they... Like if their issue is they we don't, don't want next to show our beautiful stuff next to like QAnon or I don't know, whatever other stuff, like wield some more power in those in those spaces, like adapt to the new world. Don't try and go backwards with something like QB and Jeffrey Katz. And- no, but the whole point is that they're forced. They're forced to advertise on YouTube precisely because there is no quality ad supported content out there for them to advertise against. That's why everyone wanted Quibi to work. That's why everyone wants Hulu to work is because they don't have, you know, they, they, they don't have any good content where they, if they could advertise on Netflix, they would love to, but they just can't get their foot in the door. Wait, Felix, didn't you call, didn't you call Quibi a well-timed stimulus for (laughs) people in the (laughs) entertainment industry? It really so was. That. It was just like we're gonna we're gonna just pump one point four billion dollars into Hollywood when Hollywood really needed the money. So that was nice. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, so let's talk about something serious now, which is the opioid crisis and Purdue Pharmaceuticals, which is in bankruptcy because everyone wants to sue them for basically killing millions of Americans. And... The Department of Justice just announced an $8.3 billion settlement with Purdue Pharmaceuticals. And you're like, wow, that's great that Purdue is having to spend $8.3 billion to settle all of its malfeasance over the years. 
and that money can go to you know try and help people get off opioids. Except it turns out that because Purdue is in bankruptcy, basically that eight point three billion just gets added to the pile of creditors who are fighting for the scraps which are left over from the company, and no one is going to get eight point three billion. It's this weird sort of exaggerated number that like if the department of justice had wanted two billion say they they wouldn't um just say give us two billion they would say give us eight billion because that way if we get 25 cents on the dollar we'll wind up with two it's 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 a kind of a fake number and emily i'm sure you're going to talk about this it doesn't really affect the people who made all of the money from Purdue and who extracted all of the dividends and profits, which is the Sackler family, that big Sackler settlement is still unknown whether it will ever happen. Right. I mean, the the Sacklers are really getting off easy here, just like they did more than a decade ago when there was another big case against them that people were like, we're going to get them this time. And they wound up kind of skating off easy. And then um, in anticipation of this settlement, According to some reports that I read, they actually took a lot of their money and put it offshore and have, have sort of hidden their wealth in other ways. Their net worth is still like $13 billion. And I think from what I read, they're going to have to pay from this settlement just $225 million, which wouldn't be that much to them. It's still possible that they could face criminal charges, but they haven't yet. And there's still more outstanding litigation, which makes you think it'll probably wind up again like this. Like what looks like the headline number looks big, but in reality, this family, these people are going to kind of skate on justice. And one of the other odd things of this suit is that part of it is the actual company, Purdue Pharma, is going to actually end up becoming this government-run company that will continue to sell OxyContin. So the government will now be benefiting by selling opioids. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And so this is this is one of the really weird bits of the settlement, because with this settlement, the government becomes by far the largest creditor of Purdue Pharma. Um, what happens in bankruptcy, as we all know, is that the largest creditor effectively winds up taking over the company. It's this big sort of debt for equity swap. I have debt. And so then that debt becomes equitized. And so now I own the company. So the government ends up owning the company. And now as Anna says, like the government then winds up in this weird position of both trying to spend money to remedy all of the harm done by Purdue, while still also trying to extract money from it. Um, so there is a group of attorneys general who are opposed to this settlement for precisely that reason and saying, no, what we should do is just sell Purdue Pharma to someone else who might, you know, want to buy it for whatever reason, for whatever sale price we can get, use that money to um, remedy some of the failures that Purdue did over the years. And then we can still keep a very close eye on Purdue Pharma at arm's length as part of the private sector and make sure they don't continue to do anything bad. I really was thinking about this this morning. Like, If I went out and acquired some Oxycontin or heroin, say, and sold it and got caught, I would face more uh, punishment. (laughs) I would be more liable and held more responsible than this company that created this super addictive drug and um, fraudulently sold it to millions of Americans, causing a massive 
drug crisis in this country that's responsible for the deaths of at least 400,000 or more Americans and that has cost us at least $2 trillion. Like they're facing fewer consequences than I would face for just like dealing drugs, which it just, I feel like with all these cases now that we're hearing about where companies do wrong and they get, have to pay a bunch of money and we'll talk about Goldman and the plus, it's like, it's good to be a company. <laughs> you can do bad well, stuff and like, it's, 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 it's okay. It, I mean, it yes, does, the it does remind me a little bit of, it reminds okay. me a little bit of Robert Smith as well, right? Who admitted yeah. to a whole bunch of criminal behavior and as far as we can make out, he still retains his job as CEO of Vista Equity Partners and is not going to jail and is facing like very little actual practical consequences beyond get this. Well, he doesn't get to take the tax deduction for his charitable donations. It's like, oh, come on. You know, it's just well, and I, it's, it's good to be a company. It really is. It's a, it's it's very protective in the United States. I mean, th- th- that's what LLC stands for, right? Right. The reason why people set up companies <laughs> is to limit their liability. Right. Right. And, and because LLC is pub- a public interest, right? There's a good, there's, you, you limit your liability and you create jobs and you invent something amazing like search or, you know, you sell something everyone wants. But like in the case of Purdue, I think you lose your, you should lose your liability if you create a drug that addicts like, a good portion of the of the country and sets off this like huge health crisis right there should be more and it was a family-owned company like this is the other thing like it's it's not like the sacklers were just sort of shareholders in some big pharma company and they got the profits just like any other shareholders they owned like all of the company and they controlled what it did and they were in charge of what it was doing and it is the buck stops with them 100%. Also the the government was able to get them using anti-kickback laws. So it it really wasn't the we sold all of these drugs that killed all of these people. It was that we bribed some doctors <laughs> to prescribe more of these drugs and the thing is the Sackler family has tried to really distance themselves always you know making the argument of like oh no we didn't approve da da da. But the thing is if you you kind of look like Every marketing plan that was clearly indicating this type of behavior was directly approved by the Sackler family. So that there are definite grounds moving forward potentially for, as we said, the criminal charges against the families themselves. But when you're rich, those those criminal charges take a very long time to show up. Yes. Like we saw this with Bob Brockman, and you know, we we saw that with Goldman Sachs as well. These cases take you know a decade. To happen, and in the case of the Sacklers, where the Sackler, a lot of the Sacklers are farmed out around the world. Um, I mean, it's it's hilarious. There's um, three Goldman Sachs bankers. I'm just going to mention this in this bit, like who were found like criminally responsible for what happened at Goldman. Tim Leisner has already pled guilty. Roger Ang has been extradited to the United States, and then on a call. There's this third banker who they didn't name on the call, who they said is a fugitive from justice and and like the long arm of the law might reach him eventually. And like it was like this idea that like somehow he's like hiding from justice or whatever. No, his name is Andrea Vella and he's living in 
Hong Kong. And it's very easy to just like look him up and get it. He's probably in the phone book, you know, like <laughs> it's not like he's hiding. It's just like these cases take a really, really yeah. long time to work their way through, especially when you're dealing with people who are out of the country. And a lot of the cyclists are out of the country. Two things. Uh, first, in Patrick Brad and O'Keefe's New Yorker story, there was this little tidbit the Sacklers have said, look, like the FDA approved OxyContin. Like they thought it was fine. What? Don't blame us. And then there's this like little detail that the man that they work with in, inside the FDA who uh, worked on the drugs approval a year later after it was approved started working for Purdue Pharmaceuticals for three times his FDA salary, which I thought was really interesting, especially these days when we're like kind of counting on the FDA to do the right thing with this vaccine and everything. Which is exactly the kind of corruption that Yuan Yuan Ang was talking about, yes. you know, a couple of weeks ago mm -hmm. on Slate Money. It's like, it's corrupt, even if it's legal. You don't need to be illegal to be corrupt. Do we have to say anything at Purdue's side of the story here? Are we being too hard on this company? Like P Purdue has admitted to all of this. This is the amazing part of this whole story. Purdue, the company... And the Sackler family are actually very, very far apart. Purdue, oh, yeah, the mentioned, like, yes. The Purdue, the company is like, oh, Mayor Maxima Culpa, we did terrible things. We are very, very bad. We are super, super sorry for all these terrible, bad things we did. We have pled guilty to crimes. We are making this $8.3 billion fine. Like, come punish us. We deserve it. Purdue is in no way pushing back against this. It's the Sacklers who are saying, oh, we did nothing wrong. Yeah, it was the New Yorker or the New York Times piece that had back-to-back -back quotes, one from Purdue saying, I'm sorry, and then the next from the Sacklers saying, like, no, we're, we did nothing. We, we acted ethically and lawfully, they said in their statement. Let's have a numbers round. Emily, do you have a number? Yes. Okay. This number comes from The Week Junior, which I'll show you guys. My kids get this every week. Oh, it's, like it's an actual paper magazine. Yes, I remember and those. it's so fun. It's a roundup of the news for kids. And I, was, I sometimes read them when I come across them because it's fun. This is the October 23rd edition. And this might be old news to some people, but it's cute. The number I would like to do is 747. That is the name of the bear who won Fat Bear Week. <laughs> Oh, yeah. the bear cam. Uh-huh. Yeah, he won. In um, Alaska, right? Yes, in Katmai, Katmai, Katmai National Park in Alaska. They have a competition. Who's the best, fattest bear before hibernation season starts? And this year, it was a bear named 747. He weighed about, let's see, they estimate his weight at 1,400 pounds. He got so big that his stomach was dragging on the ground. And honestly, I relate to this because... I've been snacking a lot um, <laughs> that I've been working Good from bear. We, yeah. It's really cute. I wouldn't want to get too close to him, but well done, 747. You deserve Yay. your prize. He's too full um, to bother you now, Felix. Anna, what's your number? My number is $5.50 a bushel. So um, Joni Ernst, the Republican senator from Iowa, was in a debate, and she was asked what is the price of soybeans in Iowa, the break-even price? And she went on this whole tangent of talking about other things. And then the moderator was like, well, no, 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 actually, actually, what's the price? And she said $5.50. It's, it's over $10, <laughs> just to be clear. Um, and Jody is just someone who ran on being, I'm just a farmer, literally had like pigs in her videos saying, I'm going to make them squeal and I'm going to cut the pork. And 
So then for her to not even know what this inc- the price of this incredibly important crop to her state's economy was telling. And her Democratic opponent was asked, I think it was maybe corn, and she nailed it, <laughs> like to the penny. Iowa I mean, politics. Does it's a true. senator need to know the price of soybeans, though? Yes, because it's... An it's, Iowa senator, probably. In Texas, would you want to know the price of oil? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's important. In New York, do you want to know the price of money? <laughs> <laughs> The price of money is very cheap. The price of money is very, very cheap. Yeah, zero interest rate. Um, my, my number, I'm going to tee up the Slate Plus segment, is $5.05 billion. I did a bunch of math to get there. But that is the total amount of money that Goldman Sachs is paying pretty much to settle the 1MDB allegations globally, between how much it's paying the Department of Justice and how much it's paying the government of Malaysia and how much it's paying the Hong Kong, and then you deduplicate it. Um, it comes to just over $5 billion, which, you know, to put that in context, the total fee income they got from all of those deals was $600 million. So they are being, you know, it, it's not, it was not a good deal for them. On which note, I think we will wrap up the main part of this show. We will go on to record a fabulous Slate Plus about what is going on at Goldman. We do thank you for listening to this show. I particularly thank Jasmine Molly for hosting me at Seaplane Armado Studios in Brooklyn, which is why I sound so good today. Um, thank you all for writing in. Slate Money at Slate.com. Thank you for writing lovely things about the Yuen Yuen Ang episode, which I think people really loved. Thank you for rating us on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else and telling people about it. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money.